Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm Robin. And I'm John. Together, we research and break down complex and timely topics facing our society, and we bring our findings to you every week. Our promise to you is to bring you honest analysis backed by research, to skew our bias toward what can be factually supported, and to try to make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. Naturally, we're human, we have blind spots and we have biases, and they will show through. But our goal isn't to convince you to think any certain way. We want to give everyone a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that together we can discuss and address them in a thoughtful and beneficial way. Because of the topics we cover, some of our episodes may get heavy, and some topics might seem divisive. But we believe that even on these issues, common understanding can be found. And we hope those of you listening agree. We don't accept that the current state of society is the way it must be. Together, through discussion and on common ground, we can build a better world for ourselves and future generations. So we suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. Monday evening, shortly after 8 p.m., officers from the Minneapolis Police Department responded to the 3700 block of Chicago Avenue South on a report of a forgery in progress. Officers were advised that the suspect was sitting on top of a blue car and appeared to be under the influence. Two officers arrived and located the suspect, a male believed to be in his 40s, in his car. He was ordered to step from his car. After he got out, he physically resisted officers. Officers were able to get the suspect into handcuffs and noted he appeared to be suffering medical distress. Officers called for an ambulance. He was transported to Hennepin County Medical Center by an ambulance, where he died a short time later. That's a pretty cut-and-dry description of what might be an unfortunate police encounter. If you read that in any newspaper on any given day, you likely wouldn't think anything of it. It was an unfortunate occurrence after police attempted to do their job. But the reality of what occurred outside of the cup foods that day will likely change the face of policing in the United States. And that change will come about because of the brave actions of one young woman named Darnella Frazier and the death of one man named George Floyd. And that's what we're talking about today. We wanted to take some time to talk about our feelings on the whole situation and to talk about some of the changes being proposed in the wake of the death of George Floyd and the trial of Derek Chauvin, and to talk about how our conversations around this case have shaped how we talk about other cases of police force against people of color. It's an incredibly complicated (laughs) emotional landscape out there. That's actually what um, prompted this conversation. Robin and I weren't exactly clear on how we were going to address the George Floyd uh, murder. And I mean, obviously we haven't talked about it aside from in, in passing until now. Yeah. One of the reasons is it's being covered ad nauseum from just about every angle you can, you can hope to find. But the other is how, like, how do you talk about this situation and do it justice? How do you give it the gravity that it deserves? How do you 
not let the overwhelming human interest in this story completely wash you away. And Robin and I both have, we have skin in this game for one yeah. reason or the other. It's not something that we could address without our our biases just directing everything. <laughs> yeah. it, it really isn't. Um, and so that's kind of what we are going to talk about. After the, after the verdict came down on Tuesday, we had a conversation. Um, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners probably experienced a similar mental wrestling match. Somehow you were yeah. happy that guilty had come down on all three charges and you were happy that Derek Chauvin was going to go to jail, but you were also conflicted. You didn't really feel like celebrating. I know I didn't feel like celebrating and Robin certainly wasn't celebrating anything. No. <laughs> um, and we both sort of described this profound sadness more than anything else. Like relief, yes, but not anything approximating joy to come no. out of this. There's no celebration. I mean, I have, I still, I've left um, several messages unread and unresponded to where I can just see the headline is, how are you feeling after that verdict? And while I appreciate people wanting to check in um, with the most vocal person of color that they know <laughs> uh, about how how they're feeling at this point, um, I still don't I still don't know how to respond effectively to them. And I think as we were having that conversation, this episode of the podcast is maybe the best way that I can do that, the best way that you can do that, just mm. with the opportunity to talk through in a way that you can't do in response to an Instagram message. Yeah. Because um, it's complicated. It's it's, it's so, so complicated. Layered. Um, I don't know that I'll ever forget exactly where I was when I heard the verdict come down because I watched as much of this trial as I could. Um, I think I said last episode I'd watched almost every hour of it. Um, I have to ref refine that because I wasn't able to watch as much of it after that point as I wanted to, but I still probably watched 70, 75% of, of the arguments and the summations and, uh, the sentencing. And I actually stayed at work late that day so I could as late as I possibly could because <laughs> I can I have CNN up on one of my monitors um, and I was listening to it in the background while I worked and it just got too late I had to leave so I got in my in my car and pulled up the broadcast I streamed the broadcast on my phone and just listened to the audio um, while I was driving so I was actually driving down the highway uh, headed to headed to the gym you know to get swole uh when as one does yeah when um when the judge read the the verdicts and it was weird it was so weird i didn't expect to have any sort of visceral feeling about it 
any sort of emotional response, but yeah, I, I did. I, um, I don't know how to describe it. It's kind of like a, uh, it's, um, you know, that vertigo feeling you get when you stand up too fast. Uh huh. It was kind of like that combined with this, um, when you get like a whole body chill, it was a really weird feeling. I don't know why it happened. I don't know why I was that invested in hearing all of this beyond, you know, obviously I care about these things, but like somewhere in the course of the last year, I've, I've put a lot of weight, a lot of emotional and psychological weight on what is going to happen or what was going to happen in that trial. And it was actually so discombobulating that I missed my exit um, on a route that I've taken hundreds of times, totally missed my exit, drove right by it and (laughs) ended up being like 45 minutes late for the gym because of (laughs) having to, you miss an exit in, in DC, you, you miss an exit. Um, it's like Oklahoma. You just pay your money, get off the turnpike, turn around. You lost an hour. Yep. So yeah, I, it was a very strange feeling. I definitely threw me off. I don't know if you had any sort of like physical response like that. Yeah. Like, so I leave work, um, kind of at the end of the school day every day to meet my kid's bus. And then I come home and I finish my day from home. And so as I was getting ready to leave, I saw that they, Um, that the jury had reached a verdict and that they would be announcing it soon. So, of course, at every stoplight as I'm driving home, I'm like refreshing Google News, uh, trying to see if if anything had come back yet. And I I made it home in time to get um, I always either watch Reuters or PBS on YouTube live because they turn comments off. Uh, and I refuse to watch news coverage, live news coverage with comments because people are assholes. Mm -hmm. Um, So I just had it sitting there open for like half an hour. And eventually I had to put on some completely inane, ridiculous YouTube video in another tab on top of it so that I had something to distract me while I waited because I was just Mm -hmm. staring at at the podium. And I realized that anytime any reflection moved in the clear plexiglass podium, I like my attention was off of whatever I was doing. And I I was just completely attended to that. Um, And once they read the verdict, I paused it and I watched it again um, just to make sure that I had heard correctly. And after that second time, I guess I didn't realize how much I had been holding my breath. Mm-hmm. Um, like I just let out this huge, deep breath of relief, but not relief at the same time. Um, I did not expect this kind of overwhelming, I don't want to say sadness, but it was almost a little bit of a, a a feeling of grieving that came out for just a minute. And it really surprised me um, because, again, I thought that I had been kind of detached, um, that my attachment to this trial was what would happen next, um, not what would actually happen. And so I was really surprised by by all the feelings that I did have. In that moment, because I, I legitimately and 100 percent did not know what to expect. Um, I didn't watch as much of the trial as I wanted to. But I, you know, I know how I felt and I knew what I thought the stronger arguments were. But you can never predict in those situations. Right. Well, especially when it comes to 
these cases with police officers. It's very, very rare for a police officer to be uh, brought up on charges in a situation like this, let alone found guilty. I think I need to find the source for this, but I think this was only the second police officer ever convicted of murder while they were on the uh, on the job, like official in their official duties, Um, which, you know compare that to how many police killings we have a year and right that becomes a a pretty incredible statistic given all of that and given everything that we've seen and and the the amount of evidence that was presented uh, a couple of quick points that I want to hit really quick the opening that I read was actually the initial report from the Minneapolis Police Department that was the press release about what happened that would that press release came out may 25th 2020 so that was immediately after um george floyd was killed and was murdered we can officially say uh and that was the way that the police department that was the line that the police department was going to take on it now we have to make some allowance for the fact that this is a public you know a press release that correct they do not want to complicate their own internal affairs review of the situation by having a public statement that seems to present a narrative. Right. But you can tell already in this press release the mentality that the police department was, was, was holding onto at this point. This, the, the narrative that they weren't, quote-unquote, narrative that they weren't trying to tell is pretty apparent an officer responded to a uh, a, a a drug user a drug call who was passing forgeries or trying to who assaulted officers physically resisted is the phrase they use and that unfortunately suffered a medical problem after that uh, the officers like called for an ambulance they make it sound like the officers did their did execute their duty to care which once you have a once you have arrested somebody once you have them in handcuffs which to be clear being in handcuffs doesn't necessarily mean you're being arrested sometimes it means detained sometimes it means that they're controlling the scene for safety it's not always the same thing but once you have a person in handcuffs, that person is in your care. You have a legal obligation to, to care for them, right? So the press release is trying to make it sound like that that is what they were doing. There is one word in here that seems to be doing a whole lot of hand-waving for the whole story, though. <laughs> and that's officers were able to get the suspect into handcuffs and... And... Noted he appeared to be suffering medical distress. That and, that and is the nine minutes and 29 seconds Yeah, that Chauvin was kneeling on Floyd's back and neck. Right. That's a huge and. That's it. That's the longest and that I have ever, um, that I have ever encountered. And, and I have to say, there's, there is a lot being said about this press release and, Having my actual educational training in public relations, I feel 
for the person who had to write this press release. Um, There is a lot of intent being ascribed to this press release. There Mm -hmm. is a lot of discussion about whether they were trying to uh, wash over the situation. Um, But public relations, especially when it comes to a a department like a, a police department, anything having to do with law enforcement, everything is in this press release the way it is because it covers everyone's ass no matter how the situation shakes out. Mm-hmm. Um, they've done their best to be factual about it and include all of the parts. Um, but no matter what, this has to be written in a way that everybody's ass is covered and nothing is left out, no matter what the investigation shakes out. So I also want to spare a thought for... Um... an injustice that I think is being overlooked. Um, and that would be Chauvin's defense attorney. Oh, being a defense attorney is a thankless position at the best of times. Correct. But in our justice system, the defendant has the right to zealous representation. And Nelson did not volunteer to defend Chauvin from what I can tell. Okay. I was Um, just going to Google that. Yeah. The way that works is that um, there is a in Minneapolis, there's a group of 12 defense attorneys who take turns handling cases as they come up. And uh, it was originally this case was uh, assigned to an attorney named Tom Kelly. Uh, Kelly resigned and Nelson replaced him. So it is easy to misconstrue an attorney's zealous defense of his client correct for somebody who agrees with the actions of that client and who is in support of them um that is nelson was doing his job Mm -hmm. and you cannot draw any assumptions or conclusions about nelson's personal thoughts on the matter based on the fact that he was chauvin's attorney Correct. So he did his job. He did it well. The justice system doesn't work in America. Well, this is a very loaded statement. There are many (laughs) reasons. There are many reasons the justice system in America could not work or does not work. But one of them is that if if the defense attorney is not as committed to proving their client's innocence as the prosecution is to proving their guilt, the justice system doesn't work. Mm Mm-hmm. And Nelson had a very difficult argument to make. He, he did. was, I mean, I hope he gets a long vacation after this, to be frank, because yeah. I, I don't think he should be caught up in the public frustration in this case. And I think he is unfairly being caught up in that. He is 100%. an attorney doing his job. That is. Yes. Uh, and if he is a good attorney. You will never, ever, ever hear his personal thoughts on what happened that day. You just won't because his personal thoughts have no place in in his defense of his client. But I think it was very clear from the beginning that the goal was not to establish any sort of innocence. It was to the goal from the beginning was reasonable doubt. 
Yeah. And Although, the goal from the beginning was reasonable doubt that Officer Chauvin's actions directly caused the death of George Floyd. That's that's all they could go for because that nine minute and 29 second and. Yeah. And it's actually not even it's not even that um, there's a little confusion about how the particular uh, standards in Minneapolis and uh, in, in the situation work. Um, they had to the, the prosecution only had to prove that Chauvin's actions were a uh, significant factor. Right. Basically, they didn't yep. have to prove that it was the sole factor, just right. that. But for the actions of officer, former officer, current murderer and prisoner and inmate Chauvin. <laughs> um, Correct. George Floyd would still be alive. Right. And. The one time that I kind of raised my eyebrows at Nelson's tactics were at the very end when he, during his closing arguments, oh yeah, he did a an incredible <laughs> misstatement of the law straight to the jury's face and was not corrected. And part of that is because the prosecution was able to rebut that afterwards. So objecting to it wouldn't have served them as much as a, as a direct rebuttal would have. I think that was a calculation that they did. Um, but it was, it, it was a little like, Ooh, that's a, that, that's a Hail Mary attempt. Cause he tried to yeah. tell, he tried to tell the jury that, that they had to believe that no other factor mattered and that only right. Chauvin's actions are what led to Floyd's death. But and that is not the case. Yeah, Not the case. So to be clear, it doesn't necessarily, it, it doesn't, it doesn't matter that George Floyd was struggling with opioid addiction. It doesn't matter that his heart was enlarged. It doesn't matter that he had a paraganglioma tumor. That one was that that mm, doesn't matter. Uh, it doesn't. <laughs> that argument was it was so left field. Um, it, n- none of those factors really matter when you understand that if Derek Chauvin hadn't taken the actions that he took that day, Correct. George Floyd would still be alive. Like those factors yeah. would not have killed George Floyd that day. Right, um, and that's that's really all that that they had to prove. Um, And I've also had some people asking me how it's possible that um, that former officer Chauvin could be convicted of murder and manslaughter and also manslaughter. Right. Um, But Minnesota is one of the check all of these that apply states versus uh, states like Missouri, which are more hierarchical. Yeah. The the highest, highest charge. So, yeah, there's there's two structures in in legal. well, there's several, but the two that you're talking about are like you either you either uh, convict the highest charge and that's what they get sentenced on or you convict all the charges that apply. And so yeah. because manslaughter applied, you then go up to murder three. And if that applies, you then go up and look at murder two. And if that applies, then you could theoretically look at murder one. But he didn't meet the standards for murder one. No, so they didn't, didn't charge it. Um, so, yeah, he gets he gets. uh he gets nailed with all three of those. So, and they did have the opportunity to convict on one, but not another. Um, Mm -hmm. So the fact that they convicted on all three uh, was, it was a significant decision 
uh, versus maybe just choosing one or yeah. two that they thought applied. So, yeah. And something I think all of us on the outside need to understand is that the jury got specific instructions. They got explanations of the law. They were able to ask questions if they wanted. They didn't end up asking questions actually during the um, deliberation, but they could have. So it's not like the jury didn't understand what they were charging, right? right? What they were finding charges of. So I think we can have faith. And this is a point we were talking about. We can we can have faith that the charges, or the, the verdicts that came down from the jury are every bit as, um, um, as um, appropriate, as correct, as if they had come back with a not guilty charge on all three. Right. Yeah, that and that has been a, a really significant topic of conversation in the circles uh, that I have been able to have conversations about this in. Um, there's been a lot of talk of, well, the jury only convicted because they knew that if they didn't, there would be civil unrest. Or they only convicted because they didn't understand all the factors that were at play, or they didn't understand the law or they felt compelled to. Um, and really, the question that you have to ask yourself is if you disagree with this verdict and you want to discount the jury's, uh, the jury's conviction, would you be using those same factors to discount an acquittal? Um, you know, if you, if you would have had confidence in the process had they acquitted Derek Chauvin, then you logically ought to have equal confidence in the process um, that convicted him. But if, you know, if you find yourself saying, well, it would have been valid if they had acquitted him, but it's not when they convicted him, then then there's an opportunity there for investigating your own logic path um, and maybe taking some time to look at your bias. Think through the things that may have brought you there. <laughs> um, yeah, but also look at your bias, right? Also look at your bias. Yeah. And it's not like I want to be like you're also doing the attorneys and the jury themselves a huge disservice by thinking that way. The attorneys vetted every single juror on there. So the defense had the opportunity to strike any juror that they wanted and say, we do not want this jury or this juror to sit. So the defense and the prosecution had to agree on the people who were judging this case. They, they get interviewed, they're asked questions, they're asked about, you know, what do you know about this case? Do you have an opinion on this? Are you able to approach this with an open mind? Um, how familiar are you with this? Are you a police officer? Are you an opiate, you know, addict? Right. Like, all they go through a long vetting process. And sometimes mm -hmm. jury selection, <laughs> no joke, I don't think it was the case in this particular case, but it can literally be longer than the actual case itself and the actual yes. trial. Yes. Um, it's fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. So it is it is a you if you find yourself thinking that the jury could not be trusted in this case, I would challenge you to go back and look at how juries are selected, because I would be willing to bet that you do not understand how juries are selected. <laughs> yeah, because it's yeah. not it's not like getting that mm. letter that summons in the mail is step one of a very long process. It is. Yeah. You don't just show up and be like, yeah, yeah, I'll sit in on this. No big deal. Um, I will say this doesn't mean that the jury is infallible. Obviously, obviously, obviously they're human. 
obviously you can get sat with a biased jury. Um, look at look at what happened to Emmett Till, um, and the the less than human beings that attacked and and killed him, and the fact that they weren't found guilty because of the jury. Right. Yeah, they were they were biased, but we are. <laughs> I think getting better as a society at, at trying not do, to do that. So I think there's a couple of points that we want to hit. We, we we're already just about a half hour in here. Oops. So moving on from there, the trial isn't over by the way. There's uh, the official guilty, not guilty part of the, that, that trial. Yes, that is over. So what's mm-hmm. up next is sentencing which is going to happen, I think, in seven weeks from the point of the release of this episode, somewhere in there. Yeah. Um, which Chauvin will be in jail for that entire eight weeks. It's not like he's walking. They they put him in custody. The You can watch it live. Once they arrested him or once yeah. they put him in handcuffs there, he's in jail. So you don't have to worry about him, you know, somehow being free for another two weeks or two months or something. Um He's just awaiting his sentencing hearing in which at which point the judge will uh, tell <laughs> he'll tell Chauvin, but he'll tell the world right how long Chauvin's going to be in jail. Now, this is probably going to be equally as televised, equally as stressful as the actual trial because it I would like to say, it's uncommon, but it's not that a judge can see a or a, a jury can come back with a guilty verdict and the judge says, OK, you've been found guilty and time served. You're good to go. Right. Yeah. So Now, that's not going to happen because the minimums in this case are longer than two months. But the maximum number of years that Chauvin can get is 40 um for the the murder two charge and then the minimum i think is 10 for the manslaughter and something like that uh the the murder three i'm not sure exactly what the the minimum for that is uh but i think what we're going to see is the prosecution is going to try to argue these things um these aggravating factors for upping how much time Chauvin spends in jail. Yeah. Um, they're called, uh, I think, Baker factors. I can't remember. I think they're Baker enhancements or Baker factors, but I just can't remember right now. So suffice it to say, uh, Chauvin, um, basically, he waived his rights for the jury to consider aggravating factors or enhancements for his sentencing. So the prosecution will be presenting those arguments to the judge and those enhancements will determine if any additional time is added to Chauvin's potential um, sentence. The thing is, we're probably unlikely, I wouldn't say it's impossible, but it is unlikely to see maximum uh, time for all of the charges. Um, I'm sure the defense will argue against all of the enhancements and might even try to present mitigating factors of their own. I don't want to get, we're really deep in the legal weeds here, but there's so much to explain. Basically what it comes down to is the judge's determination on the sentencing is 
going to reflect on whether or not actual actual justice is being served. Because if Chauvin is found guilty and the judge says, okay, I'm giving you the minimum for each of these, and then in, in I think the average time served in, a, in Minnesota is roughly two-thirds of the sentence before they're paroled. So if he gets minimums and then he gets paroled and all of those uh, all of that time is served concurrently and not consecutively, he could be out in 10, 15 years, mm-hmm. um, which I don't think would actually be appropriate in this particular situation. I don't know. It would depend on a lot of things because I think what, sorry, I'm dominating the conversation, Robin. Um, no, no, you like you. You have depth of expertise in the legal weeds. So that's like, that's fine. Okay. Well, okay. Then the last thing I'm going to say then is that our justice system is nominally about restorative justice. That is getting somebody who is guilty uh, to serve their time, get their punishment, and then also receive quote-unquote, treatment for what got them into that situation in the first first place. Um, So on paper, America's justice system is supposed to make criminals not criminals. (laughs) Yeah. That is what we aspire to. In reality, it doesn't do that. (laughs) It doesn't do it very well. We have a super high recidivism rate. But also the public mentality about justice is kind of screwed. We tend to think of it as uh, punitive instead of restorative. And people in this case, they have very strong feelings about wanting this to be a very punitive experience for Chauvin, not restorative. I'm really glad that you brought that up, actually, Um, because... Because one of the overwhelming feelings that I had... Um, that I, again, I was surprised to have after this verdict came down was, okay, yes, there's accountability, but also now this system has destroyed another family, um, because something we have not had the opportunity to hear, um, because it is in his very best interest at this point is what Derek Chauvin has to say about his mindset, his perspective on what happened. Um, we we don't get to know how he feels about what happens. We don't get to know if he feels any sense of regret um, or if he feels completely justified or like that. That is not something that we have had the opportunity to learn. Right. Um, and that has given the public at large, especially um especially those who are involved in activism, the opportunity to paint him as an unabashed racist who did this with malicious intent. And I, I tend not to believe that that's a fair portrayal. Um, I, I believe that this is one more situation in which the criminal justice system of the United States has ruined more lives. Um, I, officers in these situations, I genuinely believe with very few exceptions are operating 
in what they have been told is correct and in the authority that they have been told that they have um, and according to all of their training. And so do I believe that the rest of Derek Chauvin's life should be spent behind bars? I don't know that I do. Because I don't know that that gets us any closer to justice. That just gives us another scapegoat. Yeah. Well, we all have an image of Chauvin that is solely from the video. We don't know what, if any, growth he has undergone in the last year. Right. And you're right. It's in, it's probably in his best interest to keep his mouth shut right now. Yes. But I would say the argument for what is appropriate in terms of sentencing hinges on how Chauvin views his actions at this point. If he, yeah. if he's like, yeah, I messed up. I, I killed, I, I murdered a man and there was no need for that. And I, that was a horrible thing to do. And he is showing that level of remorse. Then I see a world where, yes, he needs to go away, obviously. But if he can use that time for rehabilitative justice, not punitive, and come out a better person and an advocate for changing these things, especially for working to improve the situation that he got wrapped up in, then I see a world where I don't want him in jail for the rest of his life. No. Because I don't think that's justice. It's, it's not justice. There, like, there is nothing that brings back George Floyd. There is, there is no action that, that brings the situation back to where it was when we started. Right. I, I want to let me put a very fine point or title on this really quick because I want to make it clear here. We were talking about this too, and this is not justice for George Floyd. The system failed George Floyd. George Floyd did not want to be a martyr. And thanking him for that is idiotic and asinine, Nancy Pelosi. And I I have never wanted to chuck somebody into space more. (laughs) So let's be very clear. We are holding... Derek Chauvin accountable, but justice failed George Floyd. Correct. Now I'm sorry, I interrupted. No, what that's, you were saying to 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 underline that. That's where do you that's really important. That yeah, that's that's really important. That's something that we have to recognize. Like justice in this situation will be using what happened to change the circumstances so that it can stop happening to more people. Mm-hmm. That's the the end goal in all of this. And yeah, we can throw the book at Derek Chauvin. Sure. His kids can grow up without their dad around. Sure. But how are we doing anything other than imposing punitive consequences on innocent people again yeah. in that situation? Right? Like, we have to look at restoration and we have to look at how we can change things going forward. And I'm just sick and tired of hearing people want to punish the hell out of this man and every other police officer 
that they believe was in the wrong in every situation involving a person of color. I'm just done with it. Yeah. I think something that has become incredibly clear to me because of this and because of the 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 commentary that has happened in the last week and the police actions that have happened in the last week is that people are conflating the very real humans that are police officers with the very real problem of the entire system. Yes. And something that we hate to think about because it makes us very uncomfortable and it will make people angry to hear this, but Derek Chauvin is just as much of a flawed human being as George Floyd was a flawed human being. Right. And you can't dehumanize one party in the entire situation and then arrive at justice by acting from that position. If you don't treat everybody involved like a human, you're not developing justice. Right. Because justice serves the defendant just as much as it serves the victim. Exactly. It's for everybody out there who was saying they're trying to, to dehumanize George Floyd by talking about <clears throat> by talking about his drug use um, and by putting him in the category of a typical, you know, black man under the influence who was fighting with police officers, you cannot then logically, I mean, you can, you have every right to but it is flawed logic then to look at Derek Chauvin as just a badge, just another white police officer who had it out for black men. That's just as dehumanizing and it is the same mistake. Yeah. And it will, I mean, it will eventually pursued long enough. It's going to end up creating more problems. It's just yeah. going to, um, and people, I, I can already hear it. They're going to say that we're defending Chauvin or apologizing for his actions or something like that. And that's not, not recognizing. The the, yeah, no, he deserves like <laughs> he deserves to go to jail. He deserves to face that punishment. He also deserves the, the rehabilitation that we as a society say that we pursue. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's, one factor I think that changed all of this for everybody. One factor that made this a case that could become a linchpin, that could become a pivoting point for the American policing system from this day forward. One factor that kept this from just being a press release in the newspaper. And that one factor was a young woman with a camera yeah a 17 year old girl who probably single-handedly changed the face of the united states law enforcement system going forward i feel like and and yes she's starting to get a little bit of attention um because of the outcome of the case it makes me wonder would she get the same attention had uh, had the jury acquitted Derek chauvin but um I, we do want to talk for a few minutes about Darnella Frazier um, because like most people who accidentally change the world, um, it's easy to look at all of the benefits of the things that she did, 
but we have to understand the incredible consequence with which those changes come. Um, this is a 17-year-old girl who was taking her nine-year-old cousin to the grocery store to get a snack um, and who came across a situation and, and had the incredible thought to take out her phone, um, but then also had to bear witness to the murder of another man, a man who probably looked like every other man in her life. Um, <clears throat> I know that that George Floyd... I look at him and I hear the way that he was described and he could be any black man who was present in my childhood. Um, every single one of them had incredible character flaws and incredible character strengths. And there's no way that you can separate the two and just look at one side or another. So she probably saw her uncles, her cousins, her sister's boyfriends, the guy who lived down the street. In that man that was on the ground at that time. Um, and the trauma that comes from doing what she did. And she said herself laying awake at night apologizing for not having been able to do more. We have to recognize that, yes, she's a world changer. And, yeah, she's going to get awards and and, you know, have so much support from here on out. But if anybody, I think, in this situation was a martyr, it was Darnell Frazier. Oh, yeah. I think I, I think that's accurate. Actually, I the worst part of the arguments for me was listening to the testimony of the witnesses that were there, the people we hear in the video. Um, Darnell Frazier, ugh. every single one of them had a moment that could rip your heart out. Yeah. Every single one of them. And when she said that she lies awake at night asking Floyd to forgive her for not doing more, like when she's the only reason that there's a trial at all, most likely. Yeah. And the, the nine-year-old who clearly traumatized on the stand. <laughs> yes. The, 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 the gentleman who, God, I, I he was in his 60s or I believe, who broke down into tears on the stand because he was recalling the moments where Floyd was calling for his mom, his mm -hmm. mama. And the man, the man so connected with him because he had also lost his mother that it, it tore his heart out to see a man in this state. Uh, even thinking about it now, I'm like, Oh God. But yeah. that's one of the things that I think we, it, a factor that gets overlooked so much is that how, how these interactions rip apart the people that aren't directly involved with them in yeah. so, so, so many ways. That is, I think 10 to 12 people, I can't remember exactly how many were witnessing, but 10 to 12 people whose lives are going to be wrecked. Like there's, they will never be the same ever. Their lives are on a whole new trajectory because of this. And it might not be a good one. There's going to be some trauma that 
these people are going to have to work through. And our system, our healthcare system, the way our society works right now is not great at helping people work through trauma. Yeah. And I would not be surprised to see the cycle repeat itself with one of them. One of them turning to drugs to escape the trauma, the pain. Yeah. And then ending up in cuffs and with the exact same record as George Floyd. Yeah. Um, I just, yeah, I, I, we really felt like it was important to recognize, um, to recognize her and, and all of the people who were brave enough to take the stand and talk about their experiences, but also, um, to really encourage anybody listening not to, not to just look at this from a hero's perspective. Um, yes, she is absolutely a hero and she is going to change the United States, um, but sh- that is not all that is there. Um, and they they need yours, mine, everybody's support, these people, now, more than they needed it while they were on the stand. Yeah. They, they cannot be forgotten, not because they need to be lifted up and exalted as heroes, but because they need to be remembered and treated as human beings. And yeah. they all desperately need help right now. Right. Guaranteed. Yeah. So that just, that feels really important. Um, Yeah. Um, One of the good things to come from this, I think, is the potential for the, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act to pass. Yeah. Um, This was introduced actually in June of last year. Uh, Shocker. I can't imagine why it wasn't, you know, voted on and tried to pass. Uh, (laughs) It, in summary, is it, it tries to address a wide range of policies and issues regarding uh, policing practices, law enforcement accountability. Um, basically, it tries to increase accountability for law enforcement misconduct to enhance transparency in data collection, to eliminate discriminatory policing practices, which uh, that last one especially is an incredibly high bar that I don't think any single law is going to do. Right. Um it basically facilitate it allows for federal enforcement of of these violations of of constitutional rights by state and local law enforcement so it lowers the the criminal intent standard so you don't have to be willfully or knowingly doing something you just have to recklessly be doing something to convict a law enforcement officer for misconduct, at least in federal prosecution. It limits qualified immunity as a defense to liability in a private civil action against a law enforcement officer or state correctional officer. And qualified immunity is its own topic. We'll have to do a whole episode on that because I actually, I don't, uh, it's so complicated. I, it depends on how they limit it. Um, I think it is overblown right now, but I just, I want to know how it's being limited with this. It authorizes the Department of Justice to issue subpoenas in investigations of police departments um, for more pattern or practice um, of discrimination investigations. Very interestingly, these, these very interestingly, these uh, pattern or practice investigations are actually not uncommon, except for in the last four years when they were stopped entirely. (laughs) <laughs> um, or almost entirely, I 
think there may have been like one early on. Um, right. But the the Justice Department did not pursue these pattern or practice investigations under the Trump administration. And they have started again now. Um, we actually saw one that was announced for the Minneapolis Police Department mm-hmm. on Wednesday of this week. I think it was the day after the, the verdict came down. Um, and these are basically what they are viewed as viewed as is the federal government coming in and telling local police they don't know how to do their job, which is the wrong way to view it. It is a, it should be viewed as a partnership and good police chiefs. I should clarify. They actually do view it this way. Good police chiefs will view a pattern of practice investigation or pattern or practice investigation as a partnership with the federal government to locate areas of improvement for their own department. Right. But basically Yeah, the government comes in and says, hey, um, we've noticed, you know, through the course of our investigation, these problems here, these weaknesses, these areas that you need to address. And then often they'll sign a um, an agreement to work on those things together, to improve them, to provide a plan to the federal government to meet a, a federal standard for something. Um, it also creates, this bill creates a national police misconduct registry, which I can guarantee is going to be met with a lot of resistance from certain parties. Um, Anybody who wants the police to be accountable and to be better will support this. Yes. Just hands down. You should Mm -hmm. not be able to commit police misconduct in Oklahoma and get fired for it and then move to Missouri and get certified as a police officer and work there. I'm sorry. If If you've screwed up in one state or one district, you are not fit to serve. I mean, if you screwed up to the point of being fired for it, right? Um, that's that is not that should be a no brainer for everybody. Um, it the, the thing establishes a framework to prohibit racial profiling, uh, federal, state, and local levels. Sorry, the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act establishes that framework. I think that's one of those things that's going to be yeah. a great, great on paper, difficult in practice. Right? Yeah. And then um, it establishes new requirement, uh, new requirements for law enforcement officers and agencies um, to report data on use of force incidents, to obtain training on implicit bias and racial profiling, and to wear body cams. So that growing push for body cameras, which I think is a is a great idea. Every every police officer that wants to be a good police officer should be pushing for body cams. They should yeah, be. absolutely. Um. Yeah. And I think, you know, this, this, um, this policy is available on the interwebs in its full text, go to congress.gov and you can find anything and everything about it. I would encourage everybody to do your best to read it, um, understand where you, where you stand on it. And then, uh, if you, like I do believe that it is a worthy piece of legislation, encourage your Senator, um, your congressperson, whoever will listen, uh, to take positive action on it. Um, unless, you know, your senators, Josh Hawley. No, 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 no. Pressure Josh Hawley to do the right thing too. No, I will. I will. That way you have it, you have the receipt whenever he does some bullshit again, like not supporting the, um, the prevention of violence against Asian Americans act. Um, one, the only flipping one he's a terrible person i i mean there are 
Mm. Yeah. But do There's like a do of, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Move on. Get That's out another there. topic. It's another topic. If you're concerned about what this this piece of legislation says and you think it might be terrible, read it. If you think yes. it's going to be awesome and you want to fully support it and advocate for it, read it. Bottom line here, people, though, is if you want to be active in advocating for or against literally everything, it is your responsibility to know what the hell you're talking about. So get out there, read this. I would encourage you to advocate for it, but I also would encourage you to make up your own mind and know and understand where you think it doesn't meet the mark. I think the bottom line of the the goal of this conversation is to explain uh to explain the heart of what our podcast is which is that this is a a nuanced situation and i you tell me what you think but i i think a lot of people right now feel pressure to be happy about this robin yeah and I think they need permission to feel conflicted. It is 100% okay to be conflicted, to recognize that a man who should not have died, died because of the actions of a man who operates in a system who told him he was completely justified in doing what he did. And now because of that, another family will be train wrecked. And we will see the generational effects of that trauma going forward. It is okay to acknowledge all of those things and not have, not come down on the side of celebration. Do you think it's wrong to look at officers, police officers, as humans? Do you think they should be considered as police officers first or humans first in a situation like this? Oh man. So this one's really hard and it's something that I've that has really resonated with me in the last little while, especially as we've looked at the last three cases of um of life-ending police force on people of color, right? So we've got Dante Wright and then we have Adam Toledo and then we have Micaiah Bryant. Three completely different situations, all of which involve police officers and all of which Not all of which, um, Dante Wright and Adam Toledo potentially involving an error of judgment on the part of the police officer. Um, There are a lot of statements going around talking about how, um, how, yes, police officers are human, but we have put them in situations in which they literally hold lives in the balance. Um, And so there can't be as much room for them to make mistakes as there is for the average person. Um, I would argue that very few people are allowed to make mistakes or, or given grace for their mistakes when lives hang in the balance, whether that's a doctor, a paramedic, a police officer, um, someone driving a car who makes an error of judgment and ends up in a car accident that kills somebody else, right? We very rarely give grace for life-ending mistakes in our society. Um, but I think my perspective is that we have to change the system to acknowledge that law enforcement officers are human and we've put them in a system 
that places the expectation that they will be infallible and superhuman. And we've, we've given that appearance to the public. We've presented that image to the public that law enforcement officers are this higher standard and that they, they stand for what's right and that they are the line between us and anarchy and chaos. And it has completely removed their humanity from the situation. Yeah, I think that's 100% right. As somebody who has worn the badge, it is, you are, you, you have this incredible pressure every time you go out to get it right. Even when it's not a life and death encounter, you are always, always like, how do I get this right? Because if I get it wrong here, if I get it wrong today, it might get worse tomorrow. Mm-hmm. If I don't get the right bad guy, quote unquote, today, then tomorrow they might become even worse. Things might get even worse. And it's just, that's always hanging in the back of your mind, that weight of responsibility. But then there's also this mentality that they, at least in my training, they instilled in me that every situation is a deadly encounter. Every situation. Mm -hmm. And that sounds weird, but the mentality behind it is that the potential is always, always there. Most, Most police get assaulted, attacked during like traffic stops. The traffic stops, you can ask any any police officer out there, traffic stops are, if they're not one of, if they're not the number one most dangerous thing, they are two or three. And the only things above it are domestic disputes. Yeah. I, there's an argument to be made there. But traffic stops are just so high-strung situations. So when I see a video of a cop obviously screwing things up at a traffic stop it hurts because they messed up they did there's no doubt that this woman who killed um dante wright messed up she made the wrong call i don't care that she had 26 years on the police force she shouldn't have pulled him over to begin with that was a policing failure right there pulling somebody over for having something dangling from the rearview mirror it's illegal in most states actually but it's stupid yeah it's so stupid it's just a way to get to get you pulled over um to be frank but yeah to get you in close enough proximity that the um that appropriate search laws apply yeah exactly cars are maybe we can do an episode on that but cars are completely different animal than your house and so the she was looking for something for pulling somebody over for that she was looking for something and maybe she had some sort of instinct from her 26 years on that told her that there was something to be seen i have a feeling it was more like i'm bored i'm gonna pull somebody over and see what (laughs) i can see yeah. Maybe not. I'm, I don't know that much about the case. Obviously, nobody does. So, And I right. don't know the woman personally. It is currently that under is significant investigation in yeah. Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, 10 yeah, miles away a, from the the uh, Derek Chauvin trial. Yeah, yeah. It, so it is unfair of me to say that. But 
Um, it is clearly, though, part of a pattern. Like, it's no coincidence that this happened so close. Right. There's clearly a mentality of policing in that area that is leading to these interactions. Um, and it might be nationally. It probably is nationally. I want to be very, very clear, though, that that officer's mistake, the first, the most, pro the, like, number one mistake was pulling Dante Wright over at all. That is the systemic failure yes. that needs fixed. Because yes. without that, nothing else happens. Right. None of the rest of it happens. So the fact that she thought she had her taser out, a lot of people don't buy that. Somebody who's been through the training myself, I do. I do. It's, I, I was telling you this earlier, one of the reasons that the Secret Service, when I was there, the reason we didn't carry tasers is because they are shaped like guns. It is too easy to draw the wrong thing. And people who haven't been through a massive adrenaline dump and had to make decisions from one second to the next half second probably don't understand that. I didn't understand it before I went through the training. But you forget things. You do things that you don't normally do. And so what happened in that situation, I can almost promise you, was that there was a disconnect between her active thought and the instinctual training that she had. Mm -hmm. I guarantee you she trained drawing her gun way more than she drew drawing the taser. So she thought, I need a taser, and her body enacted the protocol to do the thing, to draw the thing, and it drew the gun. And that is, again, an indication of a weakness and a place that needs fixed in our training. Yeah. But that, I don't think, is an improbable defense for the lady. Again, I don't think she went out to kill him. No. I don't think she knew <laughs> she had a, a handgun in her hands. If you watch the video, she says taser. You don't make complicated plans for your future defense of murder no. in a moment like that and say, I'm going to say taser for my body cam so I can shoot him. Right. She, they shouldn't have been trying to arrest him at all, to be frank. Yeah. Let alone the pullover, the fact that his, he had a warrant for weed, like a, a possession of weed. Right. And like, guys, you have his address. Right. If he runs, you just add the, the resisting arrest charge in and then you go pick him up at his house. Right. But it's like that's just further evidence that that the system like we have to take the steps now that we know that this is such an endemic problem to yeah. create a system that protects civilians from human error. Yeah. Because that's the system said that she was fully justified in pulling him over. And oh, yeah. because of that and because of the experiences that young black men seem to have with the law enforcement system, hmm. his instinct, his mistake was to get back in the car why? Because he was scared for his life. Yeah. Because we're inundated right now with all of these stories about life-ending decisions between law enforcement officers and men, especially of color. Yeah. And this mentality in the police force that you are the 
unmitigated, uncut arbiter of of justice. Like right. you are the 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 avatar of justice. Yeah, and it's it's that's why. They were going so hard to arrest this kid for a minor possession warrant. Right. Right? He wasn't a murderer. He didn't commit any violent crime. He didn't steal millions of dollars. He wasn't some mega felon. Let him go. Right. Like, but the mentality's not there. You're trained to say, to be like, I am the the authority. I am the one with the power here. And if you don't listen to me, I will exert my power over you. And letting you go is a defeat for me. That mentality has to change. I'm going to, I want to set a little expectation right now for some people. And then I think we should uh, do some, do the plug and do some good news. Uh, Cause we could talk about this conversation. We could talk about this for hours and hours and hours. Right. And we prob- probably will have to just break this yeah. up into a bunch of different ones, but I want people to know what to expect in those three cases that you, mm-hmm. that you brought up. And it's probably going to upset some people. And I am sorry for that. I do not want to upset you. But you need to understand so you can set your expectations. The officer who shot Makia Bryant, the 16-year-old girl, I can almost promise you he's not going to be brought up on charges. Yeah. I can, I can, I would be willing to bet all of my paychecks <laughs> that... <laughs> that he will be found to have been justified in that shooting and he will not face any trial. And I'm going to say, I don't think he should. I think that is right. And I know that that is going to upset people. And I want to be very clear on something. I don't think the situation is right either. Right. But I think the problem occurred well before that officer was dispatched. The problem occurred in a system that deploys armed police to everything. We have one tool, and it is a hammer. Every problem is viewed as a nail. Now, domestic disputes, very dangerous situations, constantly evolving. You get attacked a lot. So should an armed presence be there? Maybe there's an argument to be made for it. Does that make the problem worse? Probably. So there's an argument to be made for not sending an armed presence. But we have to figure out better responses to these things. When do we really need to bring a gun into a situation? Would traffic stops be so deadly if the people responding to the traffic stop didn't have deadly force available? If people knew that you weren't going to be arrested during a traffic stop because you can't be arrested during a traffic stop. Right? Is that the change we need to make to allow traffic enforcement to be a safer prospect for everybody involved? That even if you have a warrant, you won't be arrested on scene. So you don't have to worry about running or fleeing. That the people there are just there to enforce things like your taillights burned out and to let you know. That those aren't ticketable offenses anymore. They're just informative stops. Mm-hmm. Like, Is that this change that we need to make? Does everything, every crime that we commit have to be met with a fine or with jail time or with a sentence? Or do we need to allow for more humanness in our legal system and say, it's really hard to see my taillights. Maybe I don't know that I have one burnt out. 
Right. Maybe I don't deserve a ticket. Maybe I just deserve to be pulled over and say, hey, your taillight's burnt out. Right. You know? Yeah. The problem in that situation is that we we sent in the only we sent the hammer in that police officer had almost no other recourse except to put his physical body between a girl with a knife and another girl. Yeah. And very few people when they have um, a an opportunity at hand that will either potentially cost them their life or not cost them their life. They're going to choose life preservation. Yeah, it's instinct and it's training. It is instinctive and it's training. And so we have a situation where a police officer went in and did exactly what the system told him he was supposed to do. Um, And it is unfair to dehumanize him and demonize him for making the decision to do what he was taught was right. Yeah. Now that does not mean that there's not room for improvement. So don't right. take that away from this. There are right. there have to be better ways. The system is broken. Yeah. But this guy, this officer, is not he is not the one you want to go after. No. Again, separate the human from the system and remember that the system created that human and the system needs changed. Correct. Adam Toledo, similar situation. Tragedy. 13-year-old boy. Did not deserve that. Yeah. Had, I, and it's it's very clear, right? He turned around. His hands were up. There was nothing in his hands. We know that. Right. But that does not mean that the officer involved made a calculated decision in that moment to shoot an unarmed young boy because of the color of his skin. Yeah. We in have fact, to separate that thought process from this situation. Commenting from a policing perspective, he only fired one shot, which is, I know, horrible. I know it's horrible. Listen to what I'm saying. Only one shot is a big deal. You never fire one shot because the threat almost never stops with one shot. That's why when you you watch these videos, you hear four or five shots go out. That's why people get shot up so much. That's In the Micaiah Bryant situation, it was four, four shots. Yeah. So one shot speaks volumes to me. Yes. And then the aftermath of that video where he's on the officer. First of all, you can hear him run up to that kid and say, look at me, stay with me and yeah. try to save him. And then the only thing I've seen after that is him sitting on the side of the road, just crying. I, he is, the officer is a victim of the, the system exactly. in that situation. Yeah, he messed up. And I'm not saying he didn't. But is this the guy to go right. after? Right. Is this where your justice and your ire and your fury should be focused? My argument is that no, not <laughs> that man. Look at the system that set him up to fail. The system that sets a man running down a dark alley in Chicago at 2.30 in the morning looking for the unidentified source of gunshots that were picked up on an automated recording system. That's the system that we need to change. 
that's going to be another situation where, again, I don't think you're going to see him brought up. I don't think you're going to see him face charges. Nope. Now, and I don't disagree with that. Yeah. I think that man is probably going to be haunted by that for the rest of his life. And by probably, I mean, I know it. Yeah. He's going to, that is, he's, that's, I guarantee he's wrecked for the rest of his life. Um, and I, it's just a tragedy. The only one that I can see charges coming down on are Dante Wright's case. Mm -hmm. And again, that's because I think there was a chain of errors that happened over and over and over again. Yeah. I don't think that the charges that she, that officer, if she gets convicted of anything, I, if people want it to be a massive, you know, 20, 30 year sentence, they're not going to get that. No. And I think it is, people need to be prepared for these three cases, especially to not go the same way as the George Floyd trial. Yeah. Because they're probably not. Uh, The law has all three of them, but definitely two of them protected and probably the third one. Yeah. And again, that doesn't mean the law's right. Right. Okay. But you can't judge an officer on the law that you want to be in effect. Right. Right. For the law that is in effect right now. Okay. The justice system does not, is not reflective of our internal moral code. Um, or the, the changing moral codes of society, the justice system, um, only allows people to be evaluated based on the current laws and the current systems. Um, and so if we want that to change, we have to change the laws. And, and accusing the three police officers in these situations of um, the whole host of terrible things that they will inevitably be accused of that a does not change the law and two gets us no closer to a system that recognizes the humanity of both the people who enforce it and the people who are subject to it. It does not, I think serve justice. It just doesn't. It doesn't. So let that be your guiding thought as you view these coverages moving forward. Are the feelings I'm feeling are the, the steps that I want to take are they serving a more just system or are they serving a desire for vengeance or punishment? And are they really going to make things better? Yep. It's a really hard conversation and chances are you're going to have some arguments with people that you normally agree with. Because you're not, if you don't support some of the things that we're seeing calls for um, from certain groups, you're going to be attacked as as an enemy, unfortunately. But that's why you listen to this podcast, because we exist in a place of nuance. Yes. We can recognize the humanity and everybody involved. Which... I think 
looking back on it now, might actually not be a great thing, Robin. We might end up alienating whatever potential audience we might want to have. <laughs> you know, it's possible, but I really, I genuinely and 100% believe that there are more people out there who feel this way. Because um, I, yeah. I have to say, I did not see a lot of reaction to um, to the Chauvin verdict in any of my social media timelines, except from the um, the specifically activist organizations that I yeah. follow. Um, I think there were a lot of people who didn't quite know how to feel. Yeah, I, so. I mean, I'm still working it out. And I'm, uh, I'm sure that some of the ways that we feel right now and some of the thoughts that we have might not be borne out by the data moving forward or events moving forward. We obviously can't claim to know the right thing to do. Right. Um, but, you know, we can try to approach things as, as open-mindedly and from a most humanistic point of view as we can muster. That's yeah. a clumsy and, sentence. Well, and our commitment to everybody who's listening and to ourselves is to be willing to evaluate and reevaluate our thoughts and yeah. positions as information becomes available. And that's, that's what we have to do in these situations. That's right. And if we got something terribly, obviously, horrendously wrong, and you are moved by the spirit to let us know, <laughs> we, have, we have ways to facilitate that. So if, if we said something that you're like, wait, I know for a fact that's not right. I know for a fact that there's a better way or that the data is showing this, let us know. We would love it. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter by searching Fireside Breakdowns. Shoot us something there. Happily read it. You can send us an email at firesidebreakdowns at gmail.com. Um, send us your thoughts. Again, would love to read them. If we got it wrong, if we got it right, please let us know. Also, also, if we didn't alienate you and you find that we do tend to get things right more often than we don't, um, let us know via a review. That would be so awesome, guys. Reviews drive traffic. Traffic lets more people find it. More people find this podcast. More people listen to this podcast. More people are set up to think with more nuance and address issues better. So please, whatever your platform is, leave us a review if you can. Leave it on Facebook if your platform doesn't allow it. Find a way to leave us a review. We would love you platonically for that. So... <laughs> Um, you can, if you want a step-by-step -step process for how to leave a review, you can find that, uh, on the link in our show notes. It will show you how to do that. Yes. Robin, give us some good news. Yes. Please. I actually, um, I'm really excited about this good news because it does, um, reinforce the importance of humanity in the law enforcement system. Um, a study that was done by the University of California at Berkeley, uh, published on March 29th, found that empathy training for probation and parole officers led to a reduction in, number one, bias against those people who were supervised by the officers, and two, lowered recidivism rates among their clients. We talked about earlier how the criminal justice system here in the United States really does not encourage people to stay out of jail um, when someone gets out of jail and then goes back to jail. That is called recidivism. And uh, empathy training for these probation and parole officers um, 
led to a decrease in that. So the researchers surveyed more than 200 officers who oversaw more than 20,000 formerly incarcerated individuals over the course of 10 months. And in that group, there was a 13% decrease in recidivism among the clients of the parole and probation officers who participated in the empathy training. Um, One of the co-authors of the study, Kimia Sedation, said... Our findings support the notion that the default mindset in criminal justice settings may be punitive as opposed to rehabilitative or or empathic. Um, The criminal justice policy can benefit from putting systems and structures in place to provide officers an opportunity to get to know and build meaningful relationships with the adults on probation or parole who they supervise. So um, basically treating people who were formerly incarcerated as actual humans can decrease the likelihood that they will go back to jail. We talk about the othering of people a lot on this show. Um, Usually we use it to talk about how uh, minority people are treated in the United States, uh, sometimes globally. Um, The othering works both ways too. And this way is very insidious. We tend to assign criminals a a label, like what kind of criminal they are. They're a drug user, they're a thief, they're a murderer, and then they are forever in that group. And all that they are viewed as is that label. Um, And we have to remember, if our justice system is going to work, and if it's going to be truly just, that every criminal, every criminal, every single one of them, every person behind bars, every person paying a fine, every single one of them are humans too. And we cannot other them if we want to have true justice. We need to treat them each individually as the human that they are. And that is incredibly difficult. Yes. I was actually just having that conversation with somebody on my my Facebook page. Um, Yeah. We're all human. We're all in this together. On that note, everybody, we will see you in a week. Take care of your fellow humans. We'll